0: Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever complex array of challenges deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Karen McDudley Dudley became president and CEO of AACSB in 2020. Not only was she the first female chief executive of the organization, but she's its first CEO to have ever served as a business school dean. In fact, she's a three-time dean, having served in that role at Santa Clara, Florida State, and Utah State Universities. That rich experience helps inform her leadership of AACSB today, pushing it in new directions. In this podcast, we hear how she dealt with both the strategic and financial stress she first encountered as she joined the organization right in the midst of the turmoil surrounding COVID-19. She shares with us the new focus AACSB has on societal impact, not only in the classroom, but perhaps in our research as well. And she also sheds some light on a wide variety of topics, including how she hopes accreditation will be more relevant and less burdensome to schools, how AACSB, with its global footprint, thinks about diversity and inclusion efforts in a more holistic way, and also tips on how new deans can leverage what AACSB has to offer.
1: Our conversation today is with Karen Deck Dudley, the president and CEO of AACSB International. Jim and I are really looking forward to this conversation. Karen, welcome. I mean, Karen is, she's really the first leader who was a business dean herself uh, at AACSB, and in fact, is a three-time dean. And so she really comes to the role uh, with a real finger on the pulse. Not only that, Karen, we know you were on the board at AACSB and had been chair of the board at one time. And so you entered the role at a very interesting time on the front end of a Global uh, pandemic, and saw some things, and uh, were able to uh, hit the ground running, and we're really looking forward to hearing sort of about what you saw, you know, how you addressed it, and really what the future may hold.
2: Great, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So, I think the maybe the first question is just sort of what did you inherit when you uh, when you took on the role two and a half uh, years ago?
2: Well. I think as we all remember, it was a very interesting time in February. I think when you reached out and asked if I was interested in this position, it was at the Dean's Conference, if I remember, or maybe just right after that. Uh, and I said, you know, maybe I was, I was going to look at it. I was uh, finishing a five-year term at Santa Clara. Uh, and then by March, <laughs> we were in the pandemic, uh, full-fledged, 100%. I was in California at the time, absolutely locked down and really a lack of understanding about where money was going to flow, would people choose to stay accredited, what was going to happen in higher ed uh, in general. And a good portion of, it, of AACSB's revenue, as many people know, comes from our conferences. <laughs> and our ICAM conference uh, had three weeks to switch from a live face-to-face conference to a virtual conference. and. The team was able to pull that off, but that all preset me coming in with pretty substantial budget deficits, primarily uh, by the by the pandemic and not having the revenue source uh, that was there, but also probably some built-in legacy costs that hadn't been covered in the operating costs. Uh, the, t- the staff had gone from eight to five every day in the office to everybody virtually at home. I think we all remember that. How are you going to manage a staff like that? What are you going to do with your building? Uh, And was the staff the right size? So uh, that's really a long way of saying I inherited what I think was an organization that really needed to change and needed to focus on its member value and what uh, the members could provide and really the uncertainty about what the financial situation was going to uh, bring up.
3: When you look at the value of AACSB and and the way it's perceived by the deans and and the schools, the members, where do you see wanting to provide value, where you provide the most value and and, you know, where do you see going forward a place where AACSB can really be hugely meaningful to those deans?
2: Personally, AACSB was very meaningful for me because I think every all of us know being a dean is incredibly lonely. Uh, so you don't want you to take the deanship, have very many friends and the faculty and the people above you aren't necessarily your friends and your fellow deans are not necessarily your friends, although you're friendly with them. Uh, it's a very different relationship. And so AACSB really was my home where I met a lot of other people who were deans. Uh, and that became incredibly useful. Some of them are still some of my very best friends that I met at a new dean's conference, et cetera. So, personally, I think deans can get a lot of value out of just meeting people who have their same type of background, their same types of issues, but may or may not be able to have that good sounding board about how to resolve uh, the variety of things that come up when you're a business dean. As an organization, what I think the value is and what we've doubled down on is that AACSB's best value is really as a connector and convener of business schools around the world. And I also think that it needs to be involved in how business education should be transformed. Uh, Business education has been very transactional. uh, And I I started teaching in 1985. So I remember a very different world in 1985. And the expectation now of business schools isn't just to teach profitability. It isn't just to train technical leaders. What we're really seeing is is a demand, and it's more prevalent in some regions of the world than others, really a demand for business education to have positive societal impact, not negative societal impact. And it it really produced the leaders of the future. And that requires, I think, a mindset that only AACSB uh, can lead. So individual schools, as we all know, have a very hard time in changing the paradigm of higher education or their business school. But as a group, uh, they have a A great deal of uh, influence. Uh, And I remind people, AACSB is the reason why business ethics started to be taught. (laughs) AACSB was a reason why many schools internationalized. And now I think AACSB is going to be a reason why business schools now focus on positive societal impact. So to me, that's its its major frontward focus and what it can do uh, to help higher education in general uh, and business schools in particular
1: you um, inherited some pretty bold changes to the standards. And, and of course, that all came at a very interesting time in our uh, history. Sort of talk with us about some of the implications of those changes in the standards and how that's impacted the membership.
2: Well, uh, I was a dean, as you know, for three different institutions. I've reviewed hundreds of promotion and tenure packets, as well as annual reviews. And I was struck in all in all of that time, we almost 20 years, where I was a dean, at how much time and energy was spent on talking to ourselves, and not a lot of time and energy was spent on doing some other types of things. And part of that was because of AACSB's focus in the 2013 standards about the type of articles that would count as being scholarly reviewed and a variety of other unintended consequences that happened. So when I was the board chair, I and a couple of other board members really thought that the standards needed to evolve. Uh, usually it had been every 10 years. This was, I think, in you know 2018. Uh, so it had it had only been you know five or six, seven years. So we just said we, we really need to reevaluate what those standards look like in a global environment. They need to be more mission driven. We need to really look at what we're requiring schools to do. How rigid do we want to be in making every school the same? Uh, and so I was actually the one who appointed the task force for that committee, which is kind of weird. Uh, so you really get to live with the results. Uh, sometimes you don't get to live with those results, but I got to live with the results of what that task force uh, did. And, and I was I'm incredibly pleased. Those 2020 standards have been well received by the membership. They were voted in in our first virtual vote because it was during the pandemic. We had to launch those in the, in the middle of a pandemic with virtual sites and virtual seminars and new, new peer training and a variety of things that we rolled out. But to me, the most important aspect of those standards is to really, actually, I think there's three. The first is to require stu- schools to really think about their mission. If you look at a variety of business schools, missions they are all the same. And that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, They should not be all the same. They have different missions. They might have a very local mission providing jobs to the local economy, or they might have an international mission and everywhere in between. So really that focus on what is the school's mission, I think is incredibly important. Uh, And Dean should take that very, very seriously. Uh, The second aspect of that is how do you run societal impact through your teaching? The 2013 standards didn't really focus on the quality of the teaching or the qualifications for the people teaching the particular courses. These, once again, don't require that, but they want to know that your pedagogy is accurate, that it's up to date, that it's not 25 years old, uh, and that you're running societal impact through that. It also allows schools to run societal impact through their research, and that may not be research that is in the top academic journals. That may well be research that's more uh, available to the practitioner community or the business community, which I think is a huge a change from where we have been, and then also running it through your engagement, and so those areas of societal impact, uh, focus on teaching as well as on research, and focus on mission, uh, are changes, and I think they're really good changes. and uh, And schools have been positively re- receptive to that that type of change and focus.
3: You know, it's it's as I listen you to say that it's difficult to um, think about the fact that the tenured professors. The, the really the heart of the business schools they get promoted based on research they don't get promoted based on teaching and so to to then throw in the teaching component is difficult because you've got these basically independent contractors that are that are being rewarded within their industry for their basically building of the base of knowledge a book of knowledge and to then go to the other side and put the, the emphasis on that. Did you run into issues there? Because so many of the schools, you know, to build their rankings, et cetera, really worked hard on on bolstering their their tenure-track tenure faculty, as opposed to uh, bringing in the, the clinical practitioners to teach that really were very, very, very up-to-date and hugely relevant. And what issues did you find there?
2: We're finding less now. Uh, because we don't have hard and fast numbers about how many scholarly active researchers have to be in a particular discipline. Now, overall, we have standards for that. But that allows especially sub disciplines like real estate or entrepreneurship to be taught by people who actually do it uh, as opposed to people who actually don't do it. And so where where we're getting where we're getting some pushback is not necessarily from the business schools, But the business school's arguing that the university promotion tenure process won't count a particular type of publication or isn't looking at teaching the way AACSB would. And I think that's dangerous for universities to be down that path very much longer. I think you're seeing, especially in the United States, big pushback about what the quality of the teaching looks like, the quality of the not just the particular courses, but how it all works together. And the requirement now really from students that it can't just be the professor standing up there reading their old lecture notes, uh, which most people don't do. I think that's a misnomer. I think most faculty really take their teaching pretty seriously. But whether they have upgraded their way they teach and frankly that's a scary thing for me that's why I'm not going back to the classroom (laughs) I'm like I haven't taught in you know 15 years I'm not sure I can learn a flip classroom (laughs) or I'm not sure I can learn how to do you know simulations that wasn't the way I taught but but that's the way you have to teach now and so and I think it's a good change But really, the pushback is not necessarily so far coming from the business schools. It's coming from a university hierarchy.
1: As it relates to that, what are the implications of experiential learning? That trend has been significant for the last 30-ish years.
2: What What I think right now is going to require is all classes are going to have to be experiential. Um, And one of the challenges to business education that I remind people all the time is that all of business education, if you're just looking at subject matter and discipline based, is free. So I can go on YouTube any time of the day or night and I can get 2000 great faculty members all over the world to teach me how to read a financial statement. There is zero that is taught in business schools that's not free if you're just looking at subject matter. And so to me, the value add then of going to a business school is that the faculty member really has to be the coach. The faculty member has to be the curator. The faculty member has to lead the project discussion or their experiential learning to show the student how it all fits together uh, and why it's important and how you evaluate uh, the quality of something, which is something that's very difficult to do in a five-minute or a 10-minute blurb on a YouTube. But if we can't get beyond what's free, (laughs) then and you know, there has been some argument that the reason why students go to business school is to grow up. Well, that's an expensive growing up proposition. Or the reason why students go to business school is to gain a network as opposed to learning any subject matter, which is also a very expensive proposition. Or that they're going there to get a job. Once again, if it's just a subject matter that they want, you can get free credentials out there. So uh, I'm very, very passionate about having... Universities, especially business schools, spend a lot more time on good pedagogy, what to do when, when the subject matter is available to everybody for free, and then how you really reskill uh, your faculty members who 99.9%, I don't know if you'd agree with me or not, but 99.9% that I know have no idea how to do that.
3: Yeah, you're right. You're right. So in the old days, AACSB was the American Association. Of colleges and schools of business and now it's become a very global organization and um, I don't know what percent that would be a good starting question what percent of the members are international versus American almost half okay so how has that dynamic changed uh, what you all are doing I think it's so important to me globalization was a very big deal back when I was a dean but now now globalization is kind of persona non grata so how is the internationalization of AACSB helped and hindered the mission of the organization?
2: How it's helped, uh, and I think it's helped in a variety of ways, but it's helped open up the organization to different ways of thinking. Uh, It's allowed other uh, faculty members to take a look at India, for example, or take a look at China or take a look at Taiwan to see really different ways of not only educating, but different things that are important in those particular cultures. For example, when we came up with our diversity, education, inclusion, and belonging document last year, it could not be US-based, which has a particular view of what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like. But if you're looking at an Asia-Pacific, you're looking at an India, you're looking at a Germany, so that view is very, very different out of a U.S. cultural context, and and I think that helps all of us just understand the world we're at and the global the globalization in it. Where I think it's some sometimes our schools don't necessarily uh, are on board are things like that. So for example, we had a lot of interest, not interest, I would say almost pressure about requiring diversity and faculty by numbers. Uh, in business schools. Well, that's really a U.S. <laughs> standard, and it doesn't work globally. And so they were like, well, why can't you require that? Well, you can't require that if you're truly a global organization and you're looking at, in some cultures, economic diversity is much more important than racial diversity would be uh, just because of the culture and the, and the construction of their particular uh, countries. So to me, that is an area that's pretty new where there was pushback against a particular, you know, in the United States in particular, uh, but really didn't fit in a global context. And then the other is there has been some feeling that because AACSB is the largest and most prestigious accrediting agency, that that would mean that we only accredit the top tier by rankings, schools, and we don't look at any other schools in any other tier. And I really disagree with that because, There are great business schools all over the world. Once again, they have very, very different missions. Uh, And so if you are evaluating someone on what they say their mission is, that's very different uh, than if you're top ranking, which as we all know, those rankings are an interesting (laughs) issue for business teams and business schools. They just noticed today Harvard Medical School says they're not gonna participate anymore. Because it it doesn't help a student assess what the quality of the organization and whether it fits with their particular personal and professional goals. Um, But sometimes we see that uh, also rear up uh, with schools who want to know why a particular school was accredited or not accredited. Uh, One of the interesting issues, though, uh, is in Africa. We don't have very many schools in Africa. Africa has a huge uh, youth population desperately in need very, very high-quality universities. But, of course, Africa is not a you know, just one group of people. It's a variety of regions, subregions, and, and uh, countries. And much of it is not very wealthy. And so how, in order to join AACSB, you have to have a certain amount of financial ability in order to qualify uh, for accreditation and be able to do uh, what we need schools to do. But we can learn a lot from African schools because they do a lot with nothing. So, you know, uh, And so it's always interesting to see how creative a school is on what they uh, can do. But also, I think, you know, our structure of having a strategic plan, of having a financial plan, of assessing what the learning looks like, that kind of structure is helpful for all institutions and particularly emerging institutions to kind of organize yourself around those principles. So, you know, one of the interesting questions is, is how do you go into Africa in areas that aren't overly wealthy, Uh, or do you? Um, I think that's an interesting challenge for the next CEO (laughs) and the next board.
1: (laughs) On a related note, I mean, you have a number of members who are not in the accrediting chain. Is that a growth opportunity? And are there resources that the members, those being accredited enjoy because of a more robust community?
2: You know, I think the, the, what the accredited schools uh, enjoy is really just the benefit of going through the accreditation process, which is, once again, learning to structure your organization the way you think in areas that are useful to everybody. And so I think it would be useful to, for universities' presidents. Many of them are not business faculty. Uh, they come from other disciplines to learn how you do an Agile strategic plan and how you get it to stick and how you assess learning and how you get it to stick. And having broader ways of evaluating faculty research and getting it to stick, I think is very, very uh, useful. The schools that are members that are not on the accreditation path, uh, we actually have a variety of things for them as well. And we do webinars, we do seminars. uh, We can do face-to-face at their schools on strategic planning, for example. you know Maybe they'll never go on the accreditation journey or that's not what they seek, but they really don't know how to start a societal impact plan or a strategic plan. Well, we have seminars around all of those, what I would consider mini topics or subtopics that are also helpful to members of the organization. Plus they can come to the conferences. So they get the access to our keynote speakers, to our breakout groups, to our affinity groups uh and all that that networking provides regardless of whether or not you want to be accredited
3: the question of accreditation is kind of an interesting one in itself because i don't think i ever met a student that asked me are are you an accredited school um and i'm sure you never did they assume
2: you are (laughs) Uh,
3: they, they kind of assume that you know okay you're you're probably pretty good but uh but still it's it's one of those things that um you know, it's really more for internal purposes to make sure that we're really shoring up the infrastructure that's necessary, as you say, the pedagogy, et cetera. If you look at the broad marketplace out there, what percent of that marketplace does AACSB capture? And how many schools are still out there that, that come in under the, under the umbrella?
2: Uh, a lot. So we probably capture about 3% of the global business schools. Now, there, there are pockets where we've captured a lot, like the United States and Canada. Uh, we've captured, you know, a significant number of those that could be accredited. Uh, same thing with the U.K., uh, which were you know, heavily populated in the U.K. But if you look like in, at India, which historically hasn't really cared about external validation, but now with their new government and their education move, now they care a lot about it. So India, we have a handful of schools in India, uh, and you know it's a country of a billion people with very old traditions and academic circles. In many countries, we've accredited one school, maybe two, uh, and so there's still significant opportunities for growth in the high-quality business school that are probably in emerging markets. And so where we see huge emerging markets, once again, is in Africa, but once again, the question is, how many schools are there. The Middle East, clearly, uh, most of those schools are very well funded and are now seeking more international acclaim for what they uh, do. Uh, Eastern Europe, the old Eastern Europe, Poland and Czechoslovak- the old Czechoslovakia and places like that have very good business schools, old business schools, Ireland, uh, etc. And then there's probably a smattering down in Latin and South America. We haven't done a very good job in those countries. And we have an advisory council advising us on what types of schools are in those areas that are high quality. But you really have to have cultural knowledge. <laughs> it can't be somebody sitting in Tampa to tell you what are quality schools all over the world, you know. And so, so we've done, we've hired now regional heads who focus on particular regions. And that's really their primary goal is to identify those schools that can be accredited relatively quickly that want to be accredited or that uh, have the wherewithal to go on that journey and then uh, go forward with that. So uh, I'm pretty excited we put all that structure in place in the last year and a half. Uh, and I think it'll. It, it's already showing huge dividends and it will continue to.
1: Uh, on that note, are there sort of shared learning or resources that Either existing or uh, emerging accreditation can uh, enjoy from either peers or from resources that AACSB provides. I mean, one of the comp- one of the complaints you hear, one of the concerns you hear, is how time consuming and resource uh, exhausting accreditation can be.
2: Well, we're trying to make that better, streamlined Because I also had that same complaint when I was a dean. Uh, we have a huge data products initiative going forward. Part of that is to streamline our requests for data, uh, make sure that the data people are providing us isn't repetitive. So there's no reason that any dean should have to put in their school name every year, for example. That's a simple one. But, you know, (laughs) you you really shouldn't have to do that. We should actually be able to (laughs) auto-populate, you know, a whole bunch of things. And then you only go in and make the changes about what the changes are. The other thing we don't collect, uh, which we need to collect, is undergraduate data because every school, either they come in as freshmen or they come in as sophomore. So it's really hard to get enrollment data at the undergraduate level, but we have graduation level rates on that. And we collect that through the CIR reports. So there's no reason why a school should have to double report that to us. If they've added their CIR report, we should be able to populate that. So we put in a huge uh, data warehouse where we can pull information from the CIR reports and from the surveys and put them all into one group. And now we're working on an app where schools will be able to use that in order to pull program data, student data, businesses can as well for hiring purposes for whatever, probably the salary survey will go into that same app. So people can really benchmark what they want against their peers or against people that aren't their peers. You know, when I was, Even though I was at a a Jesuit university uh, in Santa Clara and Silicon Valley, I was always interested in what Berkeley was doing and Stanford was doing, even though we wouldn't consider them our peers, but we were always interested in benchmarking a variety of things just to make sure you were in line with them. And so uh, this type of app will allow you to do that.
3: What would you, my final question to you is, what would you say to a brand new dean that would be the, the most ideal way to take advantage of what AACSB has to offer as they kind of go through that uh, drinking out through the fire hose. Yeah. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, we'll do it because sometimes you're so busy, you're thinking, I don't have, I can't go to one more conference or do one more meeting. Uh, and I've actually tried to reach out of my time as CEO to all the new deans and say, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you at a new event. We're coming up with a basic new dean's kit as well to say these are the types of things AACSB can offer. But for me, the very most important thing is to join the new Dean's Affinity group and go to the Dean's Conference. Because that's really where you kind of see what it, how it works. You get to see other peers, you get to hear what's really state of the art. You can basically steal other people's ideas. In business schools we actually let people do that, you know, <laughs> you have a great curriculum, okay, I'm just going to really copy it. <laughs> it looks really good. Why would I reinvent it? So that type of legitimate uh, work I think is really important because as a new dean, you have to take care of your professional and personal self. And one of the ways of doing that is through groups of like people who could really help you uh, really navigate what in those first for me, even in that first year or two was uh, drinking by the fire hydrant. And I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't found that ACSB pretty quickly.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. Totally agree.
1: Well, Karen, thank you for this very informative uh, conversation. Thank you for, on our behalf, but also on behalf of the listeners, we we learned a we learned a lot. And uh, you were generally chair. Did
2: yeah,
1: you?
0: <laughs>
2: indeed. I'm glad you did. Well, let me know how I can help. I love this project, and so like the initiative, and, and happy to participate. Well, we
3: appreciate you and what you're doing, and uh, I know you're I know you're looking forward to, to retiring a little bit at some point in time, but uh, go slow on that. <laughs> <laughs> the industry needs I will you. go
2: slow. My, as Ken knows, my children have a bet that I can't really retire. And so but I like the idea of the no ha- asshole. So I'm gonna pick and choose the projects that I think are interesting.
1: <laughs> well, Jim, what'd you hear what'd you hear? What'd you learn?
3: Well, I thought it was great. I think that I didn't know it was a 50-50 international to domestic, you know, in in terms of the membership. I did not know that they were also reaching out to non-accredited schools and and had programs there as well. And I think that she's a great leader who comes in with huge experience and uh, really understood what the role of a dean is. And she gets that in such a good manner. That I really meant it when I said, stay in that job as long as you can because you're, you're important to this this industry because she really does get it. She's a great resource for new deans. They've got the programs. And I think that, that she's right. It's an easy one when you're drinking through the fire hose to say, I, I don't need to go to that, that conference. But that is one conference I think you need to attend. I mean, it's really notable
1: that she knows the organization as well as she does. And so the ability to actually stay on focus with what matters to members. And it's a very uh, diverse and heterogeneous membership. And so what is important for one isn't necessarily important for others. And so um, being able to sort of read the entire organization as a whole makes a big difference. And I think being focused on the kinds of implementation of the standards of 2020, which were pretty, pretty significant, uh, is going to continue to be uh, of significance.
3: Yeah, I, I think she's uh, she's got a great finger on the pulse of what's happening in business schools. And, and you're right. I mean, the diversity of looking at a business school in Africa versus looking at, at a business school that's been around for 100 years that's, that's broad, broad, broad brush. And um, she's kind of capturing the essence of all of those. So that was a, a really good, good discussion with her. Really appreciate her candid thoughts.
1: We'll want to pay attention to what happens and how the data is used over time, because that is a really rich resource that has been somewhat underutilized to date.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado, by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally... Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.